oh, I know that I'm supposed to mow a certain section of land and it saves me from having to mow anybody else's. I can defend and discourage illegal activity on my property. I know where I can store my belongings. Well, the ancient Israelite version of those descriptions I just read to you a moment ago are found in today's text, Joshua chapters 13 through 19. And for the past 10 weeks, we've been studying this great book of Joshua. And today, we're going to be entering into the third section of that book, dealing with the division of the land of Canaan among the Israelite tribes. Now, this isn't the place you go to in the scriptures for your liver shiver, right? When you're seeking some kind of great encouragement from the Lord, you need some counsel or wisdom. This isn't probably the place that you're turning to. In fact, if you tend to do a daily Bible reading and you're reading through the scriptures and you come to this section, this is probably the one that you're skimming through really quickly or maybe you're skipping altogether. We don't find these chapters thrilling. We don't find in these chapters compelling stories of, of like the conquest we just saw in chapters 6 through 12 the last few weeks. We are instead reading about tribal land allotments, a legal list, a legal list of territorial allotments. The tribe of Judah's boundaries are marked by this river and that mountain. The tribe of Issachar possessed these cities with a list of cities. It's not very exciting reading. And yet these descriptions comprise nearly one-third of the book of Joshua. And they are recorded in the heart of the book, the central section of the book, which in some ways signals their utmost importance. So why are these descriptions here? What does this passage, these seven chapters, chapters 13 through 19, communicate about God and about his redemptive work? And how does it help us understand the new covenant and our relationship with Christ? What relevance does this dusty old passage from a long time ago in a faraway place have for New Testament Christians living in the 21st century in this room here right now? We don't have, a t- we don't have the time to go through a detailed exposition of chapters 13 through 19, but we can take a 30,000-foot view and hone in on some key themes that tell us more about our salvation in Christ. I want to begin by looking at chapter 14, verses 1. A nice introduction to this section. Joshua 14, beginning in verse 1. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand, by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pastures for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. And the primary theme, the key word here in this section of Joshua is the word inheritance. The inheritance of the land of Canaan, Israel's inheritance of the land of Canaan, is the key theme. That's the main idea of these chapters. In fact, the word inheritance or inherit is used 53 times in these seven chapters to refer specifically to the land that God was giving to his people to possess. 
In Joshua chapter 6 through 12, which we've looked at over the past few weeks, God had given Israel decisive victories over the Canaanites, allowing them to take possession of this land. And while there are still more battles to fight and more Canaanites to dispossess, Israel takes a controlling influence over the land of Canaan. They are now the predominant nation in this land. They have established their unquestioned dominating presence in this place. Based upon God's promise he had given to Abraham hundreds of years before, it is now time to to apportion the entirety of the land to each of the tribes so that they can continue the process of rooting out the Canaanites, take possession of their allotments, settle their families, and find rest in the land. So what is recorded here in Joshua 13 through 19 is a historical record. These things actually did happen. But they happened for a reason. They are recorded for a reason. God inspired them into our scriptures for a reason. I believe that is to foreshadow an inheritance of even greater significance. An inheritance that God has promised his people in Jesus Christ. So as we look at Israel's inheritance in Joshua chapter 13 through 19, I think we'll see more about our own inheritance in Christ. And I pray that would be a great encouragement to us this morning. So if we think about this inheritance, an inheritance for God's people, I want us to see three different things or three different ideas about this inheritance. The first will be longer than the other two, okay? So don't get worried if we're on point one for a long time. A Christian's inheritance first is God's good and gracious gift to us. Our inheritance, a Christian's inheritance, is a good and gracious gift to us from God. One of the things I've really enjoyed about studying the book of Joshua is learning what it teaches us about God's character. We've seen a lot of his different attributes, his omnipotence, his authority, his sovereignty, his holiness, his majesty, his righteousness, his wrath, his justice, his compassion, his mercy, his love, his grace, amongst many other attributes. We really get in the book of Joshua a kaleidoscope presentation of God's attributes. This is teaching us, very importantly, who our God is. But maybe the attribute, as we saw in the last few chapters about the, the, con, the, the conquest of Canaan and the wrath of God, and the justice of God coming out against the Canaanites, maybe the, the attribute that sort of shines brightly here in chapters 13 through 19 is God's goodness and grace. God is essentially good and gracious in who He is. We cannot understand God fully or truly apart from his goodness and grace, just as we cannot understand God truly and fully apart from his holiness and his wrath, as we've seen in the past few chapters. We see God's goodness and grace coming out in what he does. God is inherently good and gracious, and he he shows us his goodness and grace. He reveals that in what he does. Everything that God does is fundamentally good and gracious for his people. In James chapter 1, verse 17, we read that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If we receive anything from God, in fact, all that we have comes from God, everything that we receive from God is His gift. It is His good and gracious gift to us. And so in Joshua chapters 13 through 19, we see God's goodness and His graciousness to His people particularly and especially in the distribution of the land among the Israelite tribes. The land that he gives his people as their inheritance is his visible, tangible display of his goodness and grace 
to his people. Now, I know we didn't read chapter 21, but I want you to turn over to chapter 21 for a moment because chapter 21 is the last chapter of this, this third section. And the last few verses really kind of summarize very well all that has preceded in chapters 13 through 21. In chapter 21, look at verses 43 and 44. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible open, you might want to have a Bible open. We'll be looking at a lot of different passages this morning in this section. Joshua 21, verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The land here is a tangible expression of God's blessing. When he gives in the land, he is doing it out of his goodness and graciousness. In fact, we see an example of this. We see an example of how the land reveals the goodness and graciousness of God back in chapter 17. So turn back over there, chapter 17, and look at verses 3 through 6. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. They approached Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions beside the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. Now, this guy is, refers to a story that appears first in Numbers chapter 27 during the wilderness. This guy, Zelophehad, was a descendant of Manasseh. And he had five daughters and no sons. And so according to the custom, he really was leaving behind no heirs. The women were not entitled to inherit any kind of property from their fathers. It would all go to the sons. But since Zelophehad had no sons, that property would revert to nephews or to, uh, to brothers maybe that he had. So these, these daughters were going to have no inheritance in the promised land. When, as they were wandering through the wilderness, Zelophehad died as the rest of that generation had except for Caleb and Joshua. And so when, before he died, or maybe it was after, I can't remember the exact part here, but when he died, they were, these daughters approached Moses and said, look, we're not going to have any, any portion, we're not going to have any inheritance from our father. Would you please seek the Lord for an inheritance for us? And so Moses did, and the Lord gave them an inheritance. They were going to receive land as an inheritance. And God gives this land to these daughters of Zelophehad as a good and gracious gift to them. This was God's grace that he was pouring out upon them and showing them God was being good to them and giving them this good gift of land that they might not otherwise have inherited. Well, that's true not just for these daughters of Zelophehad, but it's true for all of God's people. The land here, the inheritance of land, was God's good and gracious gift to all of his people. We need to be reminded here that the land really belonged to God, did it not? This was the Lord's land. He is the Lord of, of all the earth. All the lands belong to him. The Canaanites had been living there, but he had promised this land to the Israelites. And even though he was about to give them this land, God was doing so because he was the owner of that land. He had the right to distribute that land to them. So the land was not the fruit of Israel's exceptional military prowess, winning all these battles against the Canaanites. The land was not some 
irrevocable birthright that Israel had somehow merited from God. It was God's gift to Israel. The word give or a form of it appears 26 times in Joshua chapters 13 through 19. And in nearly every case, the Lord, the command of the Lord, or the authority of the Lord given to Moses or Joshua is the subject of that word to give. In other words, God is giving this land. He is the giver, and the land is his good and gracious gift to his people. But the inheritance that Israel receives from the Lord is so much more than the land. The land was their inheritance for sure. But the the inheritance involves so much more than the land. In fact, the land here is really a means to an end. And that end is God's abundant blessings upon his people. It was God's intention to bless his people. And that blessing would come as through, through the land. The land would be one of those vehicles by which he would bless his people. We can think about how God's blessings naturally would come through the land. What was the description that Israel had been hearing about the land in the wilderness? They heard that this was the land flowing with milk and honey, right? When, when Moses sent out the spies, the 12 spies, to scout out the land, and they go and see the, the, that the land is good, what do they do? They bring back fruits of the land. In fact, they bring a cluster of grapes so large that two men have to carry it on a pole back to the land. This land is a good land. It's a fruitful land. So a land in which Israel will thrive. Their, their crops will grow in abundance and their livestock would thrive and produce all kinds of meat and milk for them. Israel would enjoy the blessings of the fruit of the land. In fact, God's blessings in the Old Testament are often physical. They're often material, tangible, earthly. This is God's goodness to them. God gave Israel this land for this purpose. To bless them. To give them a good life in the land. And this is one very tangible way that they would know, that they would know and enjoy God's blessing. But even beyond the abundance of crops and livestock... The land would be the place where Israel would rest. And we can think of God's rest in the land as sort of a a next level kind of a blessing. They would rest in the land. They would rest most notably from 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Rest from traveling. Rest from packing and repacking. Rest from temporary settlements. Rest from not being situated in a place. Well, here in the land, they would settle down. They would take possession of their allotments. They would set themselves to work and develop a regular way of life. There would be structure. There would be certainty. There would be order in all that they did. And once they dispossessed the Canaanites for good, they would also have rest from war. God would give them peace. Peace from their enemies. Peace from the destruction that war brings. Peace from the conflict that war brings so the inheritance of land brings god's blessing of peace and rest a life of order and consistency and goodness that would allow them to enjoy the life was giving to them as a gift it's awfully hard to enjoy the fruits of the land when you're at war it's awfully hard to enjoy the fruits of the land when you're packing and repacking and moving from place to place so they would enjoy the goodness and the fruit of the land in the rest that God was giving to them. Look again at chapter 21, verses 43 and 44. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn 
to their fathers. He gave them rest on every side. They had peace. They experienced the peace of God in the land. But the real inheritance and the real blessing that the land offered to Israel was true, devoted, and unhindered covenant relationship with the Lord himself. That's the next level blessing. That's the premier blessing, the ultimate blessing. Was true, devoted, undisturbed covenant relationship with God himself. Remember, that's the reason why God had made a covenant with his people. He wanted to be their God. He wanted them to be his people. He had committed himself to be their God, and he was calling them. He was drawing them in to be his people. He put them in the land so that he might rule over them and bless them and and give them great abundance. And, And because they were now living in this land with his protection with his blessing, Israel would be motivated and, 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 and encouraged to give themselves in full devotion to God, to worship him and to serve him unhindered. You see, the Lord was the true inheritance in the land. Because they had God's blessing, because they had peace, they would be able to live in this glorious relationship, covenant relationship with the Lord. The Lord was their true inheritance. He was their possession and again think about this in the context of the fact that god is the lord of heaven and earth he's the creator of all of the world and everything in it the, the lord of all of the nations looked among the nations and said to the people of israel i want to be your god and you i'm calling you to be my people he was calling them to treasure him and to enjoy him he was their blessing God provided Israel the land of Canaan as the means to live in this covenant blessing. That there would be nothing that would distract them or to deter them from living in the fullness of covenant relationship with God. In fact, in Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, we see that the metaphors, the language, the metaphors of of the distribution of the land in Joshua chapters 13 through 19 really speak of the reality of the Lord being Israel's true inheritance. Psalm 16 Verses 5 and 6, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is the inheritance? It's not the land or not merely the land, but it is the Lord himself. In Joshua chapter 18, verse 1, look at Joshua chapter 18, verse 1. Many biblical scholars see this. Joshua 18, particularly verses 1 through 10, as sort of the centerpiece of this section. And it gives us here a picture of the covenant reality as it should normally function for the people of Israel. The people are gathered together at the central sanctuary, the tabernacle there in Shiloh. They are there to exalt their Lord. And the Lord, because he is in the midst of his people, reigns over his people Chapter 18, verse 1, the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting. The land lay subdued before them. That is a picture of what covenant relationships should look like on a regular basis in the land of Canaan. This is the proper functioning of covenant relationship. This is the gift God giving himself undisturbed, undeterred to his people. This is the possession. This is the inheritance that God intended his people to have in the land. So we see in this very technical distribution of the land of Canaan, a beautiful foreshadowing of the Christian's inheritance. And we see primarily 
that this inheritance is God's good and gracious gift to us. Now, there's a temptation for us to see God's blessing, our, our inheritance in Christ, as something that is only earthly in form. That God's blessings only come to us in wealth or health or in vocational success or in notoriety or in, in good family lives and good relationships. We do understand that God's blessings come to us in, these, in these, these ways. If you have a good friendship, that is a gift of God. If you have an income to be able to provide for your needs, that is a gift of God. If you have some kind of notoriety that God is using for His glory, that is a gift from God. I'm not trying to diminish that in any way. Every good gift that we have comes from God. Every good thing that we experience in this life is a gift that God gives to us in His providence. But these things do not last forever. You will not be eternally wealthy with American currency. You will not always have your relationships that maybe are with non-Christian people. You will not always have notoriety. You will not always have your health. These things do not last, and therefore these are not the ultimate blessings that we seek or in which we find our most profit and joy. We are blessed in earthly ways, but God's blessings are not limited to earthly forms. We also see from Scripture that God blesses us spiritually. Even in this life, we experience such spiritual blessings and tangible blessings as joy and peace. The love of God is a great comfort to us in a world full of strife and assault. When this life is over, we have the promise of eternal life, unending life untainted by sin or death or Satan. We know that we'll receive new and immortal bodies. What a great blessing that will be. We will have unlimited joy and peace and rest. We will receive rewards for the good works that we have done in Christ's name. We'll live in a heavenly home of great beauty and splendor. In fact, we could preach an endless sermon series on all the spiritual blessings that come to us because of Jesus Christ. And as great and wonderful as these blessings are, I would also contend that they are not the primary inheritance that they are not the premier thing that God would give to us as His inheritance. They are the corollaries. They are the, the logical, necessary consequences. They are the fruits of our relationship with Christ. But our inheritance is not really, ultimately, these things as well. Our inheritance is Christ Himself. Christ is the gift that God gives to us. He is the possession that we are called to take possession of. He is the reward of our faith in Him. He is the blessing that He gives to us. Christ Himself is the inheritance. Christ Himself is the gift. Christ Himself is the reward. Again, Psalm 16, which we understand that Peter used on the day of Pentecost and that Paul also used when proclaiming the gospel in Asia Minor pointed back to this passage, seeing the fulfillment and significance in Jesus Christ. We look to Psalm 16 and say, The Lord Himself is my portion, chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David there is speaking of Christ. The Lord is my portion. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The word portion there refers to the allotment, right? The allotment of land in Joshua 
The Lord himself is the allotment. He is the inheritance. He is the gift. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says that in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So if these things are true, what ought we to do? Well, we ought to take hold of the inheritance. We are to lay hold upon Christ because God has given Christ to us as our inheritance. He is God's good and gracious gift to us. If you happen to have come in this morning and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to stop looking for satisfaction in the things of this world because they are temporary. They are worthless. They are unsatisfying. Turn from your sin. Turn from your worldliness. Turn away from your self-satisfying pursuits and turn to Christ. Lay hold of Him. Put your trust in Him and in His sacrifice that saves you. And if you are a Christian, stop tinkering around with the, the worthless things of this world. You have a greater inheritance, an inheritance beyond compare. Lay hold of Christ. God has given Him to you to bless you in all things. Jesus tells us in John 15, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And the first question of the Westminster Catechism asks, What is the chief end of man? What is my purpose in life? What has God put me on this earth to do? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him forever. He is the gift. So abide in Christ, walk in Christ, fellowship with Christ. He is God's good and gracious gift to us. Secondly, a Christian's inheritance is a sign of God's enduring faithfulness. A Christian's inheritance is a sign of God's enduring faithfulness. The distribution of the land that was given to the 12 tribes of Israel signals the fulfillment of God's promise, right? God had made the promise He would give His people a land. He made that all the way back earlier in Genesis chapter 12. 400 years before, the Israelites came into this land. God promised Abraham that He would give to Abraham's descendants a land of their own, the land of Canaan. Even as, the, even as the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, Canaan seemed like a faraway place, and the hopes of their own land was a faded dream. But in the fullness of time, God brought his people out of Egypt, he led them through the wilderness, and he brought them into this land. He did not leave it to them, to take the land for themselves, but he, he led them into the land by his great power. Remember the crossing of the Jordan River, stopping the waters and, and working supernaturally to bring them across the Jordan into the land. He also, as they went to, to fight, he didn't send them out on their own, but he, he gave them power. His presence was with them so that when they went to fight in every place, God gave them decisive victories. They destroyed their enemies and they dispossessed their land from them. Well, the land and the life that they would have in the land, would be a constant reminder of God's faithfulness. Every time they would get up in the morning, every time they would put their feet upon the earth, every time they would go out to, 
to till their fields or to raise their livestock. They would be reminded of God's promises that he had fulfilled. The land and the life of the land was a constant reminder of God's faithfulness. And that's why the detailed descriptions of the boundaries of the tribal territories and the list of cities and villages is so important. Now, it bores us to tears or maybe even bores us to sleep. Some have referred to this section of the Bible as God's cure for insomnia. If you ever have trouble sleeping at night, maybe try reading Joshua chapters 13 through 19. But it's only that because we don't live there. We didn't live there. We don't know these places. This kind of life is far different from the kind of life that we know. But for the tribe of Asher, for instance, this land and the description that's given in the scriptures here is a reminder of God's faithfulness, that God does what he says he will do. Now, I want to you to humor me for a moment. And let's look at chapter 19, beginning in verse 24. Again, it's not going to give us the spiritual willies, right? It's going to make you feel, oh man, this is the love of God right here. But this is crucially important for understanding about God. Joshua chapter 19, verse 24. The fifth lot came out of the tribe of the people of Asher, according to their clans. Their territory included Halketh, Hali, Fetan, Akshaf, Alam. Alamelech, Ahmed, Mishal. On the west, it touches Carmel and Shehor Libnath. Then it turns eastward. It goes to Beth Dagon and touches Zebulon in the valley of Iphetel and northward to Beth Emek and Neel. Then it continues in the north to Kabul, Ebron, Rehob, Haman, Kana, and as far as Sidon the Great. Then the boundary turns to Ramah, reaching the, to the fortified city of Tyre. Then the boundary turns to Hosa and it ends at the sea. Mahalab, Aksib, Uma, Afek, and Rehob, 22 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Asher, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. I couldn't even read that section, the names of those cities. And yet when the Asherites got up in the morning and they saw these places, they saw these towns, they saw these mountains, they saw these rivers, they saw these valleys, these were, they were being bombarded with a reminder of God's precious faithfulness. Why is such detail necessary? Why go through seven chapters of this? Why not just summarize that Israel had the land? Well, there are obviously political and legal reasons. These records would be very important during the reign of Solomon and in the aftermath of his death. You can read 1 Kings chapters 11 and 12 and how that impacts that story there. But such details were necessary to emphasize God's faithfulness to his people. It was not enough to make a simple assertion that God had given the land to Israel. Such a brief statement would have been profoundly anticlimactic. All the years, all the build-up, all the narratives, everything leading to this point, it would have been anticlimactic, profoundly anticlimactic, just to say that Israel received the land. The land was divided up among the tribes. When we consider the repetitive of the promises, and the length of the historical interlude leading to this fulfillment, the description, the very detailed description, the description that bores us to tears was necessary to highlight and emphasize God's faithfulness to his people. David Howard in his commentary on Joshua writes, a deep sense of satisfaction would come if the reader would actually trace the fulfillment of these promises city by city, hill by hill, river by river, border by border. The physical description of the tribal allotments represents the tangible daily reminders of God's providence and faithfulness to his people. And just as the land inheritance reminded Israel of God's faithfulness 
to them, so also does our inheritance, Jesus Christ, remind us of God's faithfulness to us in the gospel. God has given Christ to us as an inheritance, but he has given to us a crucified and resurrected Christ. Why crucified and resurrected? Because this was the provision necessary to bring us into a new covenant relationship with God. God sent his son to be crucified for our sins, to atone for our sins. By his death, our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God so that we have a new relationship with God. We can experience the blessings of God and understand life, what life with God is like. Enjoy that life and celebrate that life. And yet this crucified Christ did not remain dead, but God raised him up from the grave to conquer death and give us life. Life that is truly life, abundant life, eternal life. Because he has been raised from the dead, we will be raised with him to live in perfect company with him forever. We read of that promise in Revelation 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So Christ, our inheritance, reminds us, not right now, it reminds us, will remind us forever that God was faithful to his promise to save us. Christ, our inheritance, reminds us and will forever remind us that God was faithful to his promise to bless all the nations of the world through Abraham. That as the gospel goes out, we hear more and more, this is what God has done. God is faithful to his promise. As we cling to Christ, our inheritance, we can not only be thankful for Christ, for God's past faithfulness to us in Christ, but we can also be assured of God's continuing faithfulness. There are still promises that we are anticipating. There are still things that we are hoping for. There are still aspects of our salvation that have not yet been realized in its fullest sense. How do we know that God will fulfill that promise? Well, he has given to us a crucified and resurrected Jesus. Because he was faithful to do all that he promised in the past, He'll be faithful to do all that still remains. All that he has promised, he will fulfill. And Christ is the guarantee of that. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, And of this I am sure, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So a Christian's inheritance reminds us of God's enduring faithfulness. Finally, a Christian's inheritance calls for continuing obedience to God. A Christian's inheritance calls for continuing obedience to God. Israel's inheritance brought them rest. But this rest is not a rest of idleness or a rest of complacency. The rest that God was giving them was the rest of trusting in him, of, of confidence in God who would keep all of his promises. The, the Israelites were inheriting a land of great and good cities, cities that they did not build, Houses full of good things that they did not fill. Cisterns that they did not dig. And vineyards and olive trees that they did not plant. You see, God was giving them a land already ready-made for them. But that would not continue. The land would not continue to flourish without Israel's tending that land. They needed to work. There was, a, there was work to be done. There was life to be lived. The covenant does not call us to idleness. It calls us to work. It calls us to labor. It calls us to serving 
and giving God our all. So the Israelites must work as stewards here under God's providence to reap the blessings and the abundance that God promised through the land. Well, likewise, although the Israelites had won many decisive victories over many major Canaanite cities, the Canaanites were deeply rooted still in various parts of the land. There were enclaves of resistance. Although the Israelites had won many decisive victories, there were still pockets where the Canaanites were were firmly rooted. And so even though now the Israelites have come into the land and each tribe has received their allotments, there is still more work to be done. There are still Canaanites to root out. The Israelites must obey God's command to root those Canaanites out. They must devote them to destruction as God commanded. They must take possession of all the land in every place throughout the land of Canaan. In fact, the Lord exhorted Joshua to finish the job in chapter 13, verse 1. And you want to look at that passage. Now, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. Again, this is after all of the victories of of the conquest of the previous seven chapters. This is the land that remains, all the regions of the the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Me'ara that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundaries of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mesrephoth, Mayim, even all the Sidonians. So there's the land. There's a, sort of the general geographic boundaries. And the Lord was telling her, Joshua, go and take the land. Finish the job. You've, you've won a massive decisive victory, but there's still places that you need to go and to solidify your hold in the land. But notice the promise. This is what God promises here. That he promises his presence and his power as they continue to fight in these battles. In verse 6, the Lord says, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide the land for an inheritance to the tribes, nine tribes and half tribe of Manasseh. So the Lord here is telling them, look, this is the job that still remains. This land is your rest. This is your land. Divide it up. But there are places to go. And wherever you go, I'm going to go with you. My presence and my power will be with you to finish the job. But the Israelites needed to finish the job. They needed to do it. They couldn't rest on their laurels. They couldn't be satisfied simply with what they had already. Life in the land meant that they needed to go and to finish the job. We see an excellent example of the kind of devotion and obedience that is proper among those who receive an inheritance from God in the person of Caleb. Look at chapter 14, verses 6 to 15. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly follow the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. 
I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with, with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. So you remember the story of Caleb, I'm sure. He was one of the spies. Moses had sent out 12 spies after the Israelites had come out of Egypt to go spy out the land, see how good it was, and to bring back a report about the need to go and take the land. And so Caleb and Joshua came back and said, yes, the land is great. Let's go get it. And the other ten spies said, no, there are giants in the land. The Anakim, these terrifying warriors, terrifying giant people. There's no way that we can win. There's no way we can take this land. Let's not go. And, of course, God cursed that generation because they had failed to obey the Lord, their God. But God spared Joshua and Caleb and said, look, you will live. You will endure the 40-year period. You won't die. And you will be the only Israelites to come out of Egypt that will also go into the land of Canaan. And so when they finally get there, as Joshua is distributing the land, who's the first person to come forward and say, I want mine? It's Caleb. At 85 years old, he says, I want my land. Moses made this promise. I wholly follow the Lord I want my inheritance, and I want to go where the strongest and toughest people are. I want to go to the Anakim, the ones that the other ten spies were afraid of 40 years ago. I want that mountain. I want to go against those tough people because I know that the Lord will be with me, and He will give me success. He will give me victory to defeat them in the land. And so Joshua gives him that. That's the kind of obedience. That's the kind of devotion that God was seeking among His people. This is what every Israelite should have been saying as they're all in line waiting for their inheritance saying give me mine i want my territory the lord is with me i'm going to go get it i'm going to root out the people and i'm going to establish my life and my family in the land that's the kind of devotion and obedience that all of the israelites were to follow they were not to fear their enemies but they were to fear god and to trust him that he would give them their land the land the, the inheritance that they're receiving here comes with it a call to continuing obedience. This passage also, unfortunately, comes with repeated warnings for failing to obey God. In fact, four times in these seven chapters, we read that some tribes did not drive out the Canaanites as God commanded, but they allowed them to live in that land, a purposeful neglect of God's express command to them. Look at chapter 13, Verse 13. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites, but Geshur and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Chapter 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Chapter 16, verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Israel, Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. And then chapter 17, verse 12. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. 
Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. It is this disobedience to the Lord's command that will ultimately bring Israel's ultimate downfall centuries later. Because the Canaanites remained in the land, they continued to be Israel's thorn in the flesh. They led the Israelites astray by their idolatry and their immorality and eventually brought God's judgment upon them. This was not what God commanded. Life in the land meant, called them to, continuing obedience to God's commands. Now, Christ, our inheritance, is a gift. We've mentioned that, right? It's God's good and gracious gift given to us by grace. And yet, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to this precious gift? Well, we receive it. We receive it with, by faith. We receive it with gratitude and thanksgiving. We also receive it with the promise of devotion. Our devotion is not a work by which we attain the gift, but it is the proper response to the gift. We cannot receive such an inestimable gift as Christ and not be compelled to submit our lives to God in enduring and endearing devotion that we express in our obedience. As we enjoy our inheritance in Christ, we continue to love God and to serve God who has given Christ to us. My, one of my dad's favorite hymns is one I remember singing a lot growing up is the hymn, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. I may have used this illustration before. But that hymn, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder, recounts in the first, two ver- the first two verses of that hymn really speak about the future hope that we have in Christ. Christ is our inheritance. There is a heavenly reward. There is an expectation that we will someday be with Christ in the heavenly realms and enjoying life with Him when our faith becomes sight. But the final verse of that hymn exhorts us to the responsibility that now awaits us. It says, let us labor for the Master now, from the dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all His wondrous love and care. And then, when all of life is over, and our work on earth is done, and the role is called up yonder, I'll be there. So when Christ is our inheritance, and we treasure Him as our inheritance, then we will be properly motivated to spend the rest of our days laboring for Him and obeying His Word in true devotion to Him. So let me ask you this morning, is Christ your inheritance? Is Christ your inheritance? And if He is, by faith in what He has done for you in His death and resurrection, do you treasure Him? Do you treasure Him? Do you express that aspect of treasuring Christ by abiding in Him? Are you abiding in Him? Are you resting in His faithfulness? Are you properly responding to His great gift of Christ by genuinely devoting yourself to Him and obeying His Word? Do you show that devotion because of what He has given to you? We sang before... The message this morning, All I Have is Christ. What a great, that's a modern hymn. What a great modern hymn that it really kind of nicely bookends, I think, the message this morning. There's another older hymn that I came across not long ago that I think really applies to this as well. It's written by, it's very obscure, very hard to find, but it's by W.A. Williams. And he captures this sense of, of the glory of Christ as our inheritance in his hymn, Christ is All. I want to read it to you. 
I entered once a home of care, for age and penury were there, yet peace and joy with all. I asked a lonely mother whence her helpless widowhood's defense. She told me, Christ is all. I stood beside a dying bed where lay a child with aching head waiting for Jesus' call. I marked his smile to as sweet as may, and as his spirit passed away, he whispered, Christ is all. I saw a martyr at the stake. The flames could not his courage shake, nor death his soul appall. I asked him whence his strength was given. He looked triumphantly to heaven and said, Christ is all. I saw the gospel herald go to Africa's sand and Greenland snow to save from Satan's thrall. Nor home nor life he counted dear, midst wants and perils own no fear. He felt that Christ is all. Then come to Christ, O come today. The Father, Son, and Spirit say, the bride repeats the call. For he will cleanse your guilty stains. His love will soothe your weary pains. For Christ is all in all. Christ is all. A great inheritance for God's people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these passages, Lord, that we are so quick sometimes to rush through and not consider the implications of what they're recorded in Scripture for. And we are mindful, Lord, of of not only the fact that you gave Israel mountains and rivers and cities and villages to mark their land, but, Lord, you were showing them that the true inheritance that we have is, is really you. May you give us the fullness of that inheritance in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's my prayer this morning, Lord, that we would treasure him, that he would be dear to us, more dear than anything that this world could offer to us, more dear now today than he has ever been before. And I pray, Lord, that we would lay hold of him and abide in him and trust in him and be devoted to him for the rest of our days. Because we know, Lord, that only your goodness and your grace come to us through him. And that your goodness and grace is not only sufficient, but it is best. It is all. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.